Well, we live in a day and age where it is not uncommon to experience, uh, witness, or even be a victim of discrimination. Sometimes the discrimination takes different forms. Uh, It can be used uh, or based on economic differences. Uh, Other times it can be due to race or ethnicity. Still other times it can be based on age, uh, education, or gender. This kind of experience is inevitable in a fallen world like the one that we live in due to sin. Right? The world is not the way that God created it to be anymore because sin has distorted God's good creation. Therefore, it's not very surprising um, to, to witness these things or to even experience them. Uh, and sometimes it can even be expected, sadly. However, as common as this, prom- as this problem may be in the world... Uh, Christians are called to a different standard of living. Christ's people are to be those who have been, uh, are, are called to be those who treat others with love and with honor because we ourselves have been treated this way by God himself. We are called to show this kind of love um, to others both out in the world and especially in the church. Now, some Christians wrestle with showing favoritism for different reasons and can sometimes be unaware of it uh, or even unaware of the severity of it. Even though Christians are those who have been born again to new life, given a new heart with new desires, uh, we still wrestle with ongoing sin uh, in our heart to different degrees and in different ways. This is because sin, uh, specifically uh, the sin of favoritism, is something that doesn't change overnight when you're saved, and it's not something that happens automatically. Right? Uh, we don't just stop doing uh, or stop showing favoritism. Uh, it's something that we have to work at, something that we have to be putting to death, something that we have to take off, right? Now, like all sins, we have to be active in our understanding of the Word of God because as James has already shown us uh, in chapter 1 of his letter, the Word of God is like a mirror. It shows us our deficiencies. It shows us where we fall short. It shows us where we lack, where we are immature, where we are incomplete, where we need to grow. And so this is why it is important for us to be in the Word of God because in being in it, we will, be, we will be shown where we need to grow, where we need to repent of. And the sin of favoritism is one that we will uh, uh, be looking at today as found in our passage. Christians, uh, James tells us this morning that Christians must not discriminate against others because it is inconsistent with the gospel. Instead, God's people must be marked by mercy. I'll repeat that again. Christians must not discriminate against others 
because it is inconsistent with the gospel. Instead, God's people must be marked by mercy. This is the overall idea that we will be looking at this morning. And if you're taking notes this morning, our passage gives us three truths that are very important for us to know about favoritism. Three truths for us to know about favoritism. The first one is favoritism is incompatible with the Christian faith. We see that in verses 1 through 4. Second, we will find that favoritism is sin. We'll see that in verses 5 through 11. And last, we'll see that favoritism is to be countered with mercy. Favoritism is to be countered with mercy. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's in front of you, uh, you can turn to our text, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. You can find it on page 1011. 1011 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. James 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or Sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy mercy triumphs over judgment this is the word of the lord in our last sermon James told us about the importance of being doers of the word, not just hearers. We learned that being a doer of the word involves both hearing and actually doing or responding to God's word as he calls us to, right? This is what obedience looks like, right? If, if you wanted to set up an equation for obedience, it's Hearing plus doing equals obedience. This is what James took time to, to write to us about in chapter 1. 
So it's not just enough to be hearers of the word. We must take it a step further and actually do what we are called to do. After explaining this, James put our understanding of obedience to the test. He said that acceptable religion before God is one that is based on love. Love of neighbor and love of God. As Christians, we're called to imitate our Heavenly Father by loving those who are in need. In the time of James, it was the orphan and the widow. And if you have your Bible open, which I encourage you to keep it open, you see that there in chapter 1, verse uh, 26 and 27, where he writes, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here we find love of God and love of neighbor. This is a summary of the entire law, right? 613 laws narrowed down to two, loving God, loving neighbor. Ten commandments. The first four have to do with loving God. Do not have any other gods. Do not bow down and worship them. Right? You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. The first four have to do with God. The last six have to do with loving your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. So here we find a summary of the law. Loving God, loving neighbor is what pure religion is looks like it's the type of religion that god accepts so it's not enough to just be hearers of the word we have to actually do something with this so james puts it to the test and as christians we're called to imitate our heavenly father by loving those who are in need in essence james says that we know we are obedient to God's command to love our neighbor when we give of ourselves, of our time, of our resources, um, to caring for those who are most in need. Christians are also called to love God. To this, James says that acceptable religion is also seen in our lifestyle. It, 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 our lifestyle as Christians ought to be one of ongoing personal holiness, growing in love for God by loving the things that He loves and lessening our love for the things of this world. This is personal holiness. Today, we have a continuation of this teaching where we see that being doers of the Word involves how we treat others. What happens if we don't keep ourselves from being corrupted by the world, or as James puts it here in James chapter 1, verse 27, what happens if we don't keep ourselves unstained by the world? Well, James says that one of the things that can happen is that it will produce pride, which leads to showing sinful partiality, discrimination, or favoritism. And if we're not careful, this will infiltrate uh, our hearts, and it, it will affect the way that not only we, do we treat others outside in our workplace, at home, uh, with our circle of friends, but it will also infiltrate the church. We'll bring those attitudes 
inside into the assembly. So James writes to us to warn us about these things. Uh, So we come to the first truth about favoritism. Favoritism and faith are incompatible. Verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we find an exhortation against favoritism. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James calls us to let go of one and take full hold of the other. He says, as you hold faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot hold Christ and hold on to favoritism because they don't go together. They're incompatible. And then James exhorts believers to, to, to stop doing something that they were already doing, which was showing partiality. Depending on the version of the Bible that you have, um, the ESV transfer, uh, translates this word partiality. Uh, the CSB tra- uh, translates it favoritism, for example. But the word used uh, for favoritism or partiality is one that literally means to receive someone according to their face. It carries the idea of making judgments based on appearances. So because of this, James says that favoritism and faith in Christ are incompatible. They don't go together. In other words, showing partiality or favoritism based on external appearances It has no place in Christian living. It ought not to be. It can be expected of those outside the world, outside in the world, those that don't know God, those that don't know Christ, those that have not received the grace of God. But for those that claim to be Christians, for those that know Christ, for those who have tasted the mercy and the grace of God, this should not be so. In our lives, this is a worldly practice, not a Christian one. And this is why James, once again, is building off of chapter one, where he says that pure religion is you love your neighbor and you love God by keeping yourself unstained from the world. And one way that we do that is by not accepting or rejecting people based on external appearances by appearances of wealth, by race or ethnicity, by looks, by education, or social position. So this is one of the first things that James tells us. He gives us an an exhortation against favoritism. But then to drive this point home, he also gives us an illustration. Look there at verse 2 and 3. He says, Because, or for, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? To make that a little bit more, bring it a little closer to home. Suppose 
we had two visitors visit FBC, right? They're not members here, first time here. And suppose they come in through one of the doors, and one of them being a well-dressed man, you know, maybe could be a suit and tie, you know, very well-groomed, very presentable. Um, and then a poor man comes in, might be smelly, clothes might be dirty, might not dress according to uh, how folks at FBC are accustomed to dressing, right? And let's say one of the deacons, right? Generally, it's the deacons that are um, waiting at the door. Or it might not be a deacon. It might be a church member out in the parking lot. Um, they stand at the door, and they look on the rich man, and they immediately give him special attention, greeting him. Hey, how are you? Welcome to FBC. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Come here. Let me show you where to sit. Look, we have two areas. You can sit here in the main hall. You can sit here on the right. Uh, we have bathrooms over there. We have another bathroom over here. Oh, do you have a, a, a child? Oh, we, we offer, you know, uh, care for your children, too. Special attention, right, based on the appearance. But then a poor man walks in, and because of his appearance, you immediately start to kind of look at him like, huh. Oh, hey, um, we have canopies outside during the service. Go, you can stand out there. We, we have speakers, and you're good. You can listen to the sermon from outside. Or, hey, go sit in the foyer. We have, you, you'll be fine there. You know, somebody will come and, and take your information. If we do this, James says, you have treated them unequally because of their appearance. James says you have committed discrimination in the treatment of the visitors. Now, you may be wondering, or you may be saying, I've never done that. I am clear, right? That's good. But it doesn't, it's not just limited to nice clothing, not so nice clothing, being well-groomed or not being groomed. It can do with, it can touch on ethnicity. It's like, oh, I don't feel comfortable around that person. Uh, I'm going to go sit over there. It can be based on education or financial status. Oh, did you see what kind of car they came in? Eh, yeah, I probably won't gain anything from talking to them. Or, oh, that's a nice car. Or, oh, this person works where? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go talk to that person. Hey, how are you? My name is Oscar. Welcome. Let's exchange numbers. Let's go get coffee. Right? But someone who may not look like they'll benefit us, Fill the card out and give it to one of the pastors. They'll call you. Discrimination. Favoritism. It's incompatible with the Christian life. This is what James is telling us. And he says that this should not take place, especially in our assembly, in the local church, where... Redeemed, the redeemed come and gather to worship 
the God who has been gracious and merciful to us, who has sent his son Jesus into the world to seek and to save us, not because we were well-behaved, not because we were lovable, not because we had something to offer him, but because he chose to set his love on us and to save us. Despite our sin, despite being poor according to God's eyes, spiritually poor, right? It's incompatible if we have tasted the goodness of the Lord. But James also says that it's incompatible uh, when we look at verse 4. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now James responds to this hypothetical example, and he asks, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Right? In chapter 1, James told us, hey, when you find yourself in trials, there's going to be the temptation to blame God and to say, why are you tempting me? Where does that come from? Remember, he said it comes from where? Your heart's sinful desires, right? Here, again, he goes back and, he, and he's bringing now favoritism and he is attributing this sin back to the same source. He says, where does this kind of attitude and treatment come from? Well, it comes from evil desires in your heart or even evil motives. In other words, it shows a heart problem. It shows that there's something wrong between your understanding of who God is and how you live. Because a right understanding of God ought to lead us to a right orthopraxy, uh, a right practicing of God's word. And the answer is yes to his question. Doesn't this show that your, your, your heart motives are messed up and they're, they're, they're evil? And the answer is yes. It does show that. Favoritism is incompatible with faith for a few reasons. The unequal treatment of others um, leads one to usurp God's throne or God's judgment seat. You see, God, there is one judge. There is one God. God is that judge. It's not us. Right. We haven't been given that position to make these kinds of sinful judgments based on appearance. We make ourselves greater than others when we make judgments on how they ought to be treated based on their appearances. Not only that, but when we do this, we show that our judgment is flawed and motivated by sinful motives. Take an example from the court system. Judges are those who are to make judgments based on facts, right? They are to make, they are to be, they are to hold justice uh, with equity. If you have ever been to Washington, D.C. or to a court, you've probably, or even in movies, you've probably seen Lady Liberty, right, with uh, holding a balance, and what's around her eyes? It's a blindfold, right? It shows that she's supposed to be impartial. Suppose 
uh, the judgment, it's supposed to be equitable. And when we judge based off of appearances, uh, it shows that our judgment is flawed. Uh, similarly, Christians are called to make sound judgments based on how God treats us in Christ, not based on external appearances such as financial or social positions or these kinds of things. The main reason that it's incompatible with the faith is that Christians have not been treated uh, this way by God. If you uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 26, you don't have to, but I'll read it for us. This is what Paul writes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, writing to Christians, he says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God didn't choose us based off of our wisdom, based off of our beauty, based of our lovability, that's a word, uh, how lovable we are. God chose us simply because he is merciful and he is gracious and he is kind. And a right understanding of God, a right understanding of what he's done for us in Christ will be demonstrated by the way that we treat others. We will treat them as God has treated us. Right? So, it's incompatible. Favoritism and faith is, is incompatible. Um, so that's the first thing that we learn. The next truth that we learn about favoritism is that favoritism is sin. We see that in verses 5 through 11. Now, at this point, James calls his readers to pay close attention to what he's saying because he wants us to think about the inconsistency between favoritism and the Christian faith. This is why in verse 5 we read, Listen, my beloved brothers. He wants us to pay attention. One of the things that we learn about the inconsistency, or one of the things that we learn about favoritism is that it's inconsistent with God's character. The first thing to note is that uh, it's inconsistent with God's character. James asks, hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And the answer, once again, is yes. Right? James is asking a lot of questions, and these questions come with the answer. The answer, once again, is yes. We may have or he may have had Jesus' words in mind where Jesus said that uh, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. God is described as a God who loves the poor and defenseless. He is described as a God of widows and a father of orphans. We find this throughout the Psalms, through the Proverbs, through the Old Testament. Um, 
Now, the poor here deals with those that the world esteems as poor, as invaluable, not important. Now, it's important to note that James is not saying that the poor have any merit before God because of their poverty. James is not saying in order to be accepted by God, you need to be poor financially. That's not what God is saying. I mean, that's not what James is saying, right? But what James is saying is that God chooses based on his will, not based on anything that he sees in us. Instead, recognizing that God does not discriminate against the poor. God doesn't go straight to the rich. Doesn't, God doesn't go only to the wise, as we just read in 1 Corinthians. God includes the poor. God loves the poor. He doesn't treat the rich with favoritism. Now, it's interesting that uh, throughout church history, as we read in the scriptures, uh, the poor, it seems, are more inclined to trust in God. Um, that is because the poor generally don't have all of the resources that the rich have. Right? So... I've seen this on, in trips to, to, on mission trips to Mexico, for example, uh, or Peru. Times that I visited villages where uh, folks don't have all of the food that we have access to, right? Or sometimes if there's no, um, there's no money coming in, they have to trust in God, uh, pray for God's provision for somebody, for him to send somebody to send them something to eat, right? They're more inclined to, to trust and to reach out and to, to cry out for help. Um, but it's challenging for the rich to trust in God the same way. Why? Because for the rich, it's easier to take out a debit card, take out a credit card, to buy with ease and therefore there's no there's the, the same need that the poor have is not to the same level that the rich have and so uh, the poor are marginalized and are over, oftentimes overlooked or there's injustices that take place and so where do the poor go to well they go to God and the beauty of the gospel that's appealing especially when you are in need is that God has promised that one day he will make everything right, right? So if you don't have anything, the gospel is appealing in that in Christ, the creator of the universe, he offers me riches in glory to reign with him forever. And he offers me forgiveness of sin. Of course, the gospel is great news. But when you have more stuff and more things, it's kind of harder to see your need. It can even be more offensive to, to say that, hey, you might be appearing to have it all together, but you need God. You're a sinner. Wait, what? I'm a sinner. I give to the poor. <laughs> I do good things. I go to church. Right? And so... James here tells us that God is not a God who shows favoritism to the rich. He loves the poor. So it's inconsistent then uh, with God's character. 
So this is why favoritism is sin. But we also find another reason is that it's inconsistent with the way that the rich were treating the poor. In verses 6 and 7, it says, uh, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So, it's illogical first to see that God honors the poor. He doesn't show favoritism towards the rich. So it's illogical for then a Christian to do the opposite, right? But in this situation now, James says, hey, it's the rich that are persecuting you. They drag you to court. They want you to pay up. Maybe they lend money or the, the poor were, uh, had a debt towards the rich and the rich are saying, pay up. Give me what you owe me. You can, maybe the parable of the unforgiving servant comes to mind that Jesus told us about. There was one servant who owed a large amount of money and he was brought before um, the master and he pleaded and he begged for mercy. And the master said, fine, I forgive you. Then that same servant on his way home, there was someone who owed him a lesser amount and he starts choking him and he says, pay up. Pay me what you owe me. When the master found out, he had that wicked servant arrested and thrown into jail. Right? You did this kind of idea that you can get from this. It's the rich who are um, making life difficult for the poor. And here we find that it's illogical. If, if, the, if the rich are treating the poor this way, yet you are treating the rich with favoritism because... Maybe you can get something out of them. That is not it, logical. It, 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 it's, it's sin to do that because you are treating both unfairly. So favoritism is sin because it's inconsistent with, with God's character, but it's also inconsistent with the way that the poor, were, the, the rich were treating the poor. But we find a third reason in that it's inconsistent with God's law. In verses 8 through 11, we read, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. A few things about this. James is saying that you may see growth in certain areas of your life. You might not be a murderer physically, or a murderer in your heart. Jesus says that you don't have to do the physical act of murdering to commit murder. It's if you hold hatred in your heart towards a brother, it's the same thing as if you murdered. So you might say, hey, I'm not a murderer. I'm not doing that. You might be saying, hey, I'm not an adulterer. I don't, I'm not doing that, right? James says, you might not do those things, but if you show favoritism, you're guilty. 
as if you were doing those things. Because if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking them all. And so in this sense, James is putting favoritism up there with adultery and with murder. And it shows that we fall short and that we are in desperate need of mercy ourselves. Right? So James shows us that favoritism is sin for these reasons. The third truth that James wants us to know is then, what do we do? Right? What do we do? We are convicted as uh, guilty uh, men and women before God. And so... How are we to respond? Well, the third truth is that favoritism ought to be countered with mercy. We see that in verses 12 and 13. He says, so, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says that all of this truth ought to transform the way that we live. Right? If you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, if you are a recipient of the gospel, if your sins have been forgiven, if you have been adopted as a child and you have been justified and you are being sanctified and you have the hope that you will be glorified, then that ought to reveal itself or show itself in the way that you live. And that character trait or that fruit of the Spirit in your life that shows that you are hating sin, uh, favoritism, you are putting it off, is that you will begin to see a heart that is merciful. So, how do you know that someone is not a liar anymore? that person begins to speak the truth, right? How do you know that someone is not a thief anymore? Well, that person begins to work with his own hands to provide for the needs of others, right? For himself. How do you know that a person does not show favoritism or is growing in hating favoritism? Well, that person shows mercy. This is what James is telling us. You know that you are growing in not showing partiality, that you are not discriminating, that you are not showing favoritism when you begin to see the fruit of being merciful in your life, in the way that you treat others. And you get here, you cultivate this by knowing that God has been merciful to you. God's mercy enables us to be merciful people. It is when we meditate on the gospel, when we understand the gospel, that our hearts get warmed to the truth of the mercy of God in our lives, which then moves us to be merciful people as we willingly and actively begin to put favoritism to death. The good news of the gospel, friends, if you are visiting and you're not a Christian, um, is that 
we have all sinned against God. Not only have we uh, been people who show favoritism, uh, not only have we uh, been people who have been adulterers at heart, not only are we people who murder or who harbor hate in our heart, we, we've broken God's law as a lifestyle. And we are guilty before God. And if God were to judge us, which he will, in his right time, God has, uh, God has said that he will be impartial in his judgment. He will give us what we deserve. And what we deserve is his full wrath. We deserve to be judged by God. And we deserve to be separated from God for an eternity. That is what we deserve. But the good news of the gospel is that God in his kindness has chosen to display mercy to those that don't deserve it. And God has done this by sending his son Jesus Christ into the world to take on our sin. He took our sins upon himself and he paid for them on the cross. You see, he didn't pay for his own sins because he didn't have any. He paid for our sins on the cross so that we would be accepted before God. You see, I like what uh, one pastor says uh, as he describes this. He says, Jesus, the Lord of glory, as, he, as James describes him uh, in verse 1. Jesus, the Lord of glory, the one who is immensely beautiful and rich. He is the king of the universe. He willingly chose to leave his throne, to leave all of the praise and all of the worship that he receives from the angels 24 hours a day. He chose to leave um, the beautiful uh, Godhead of God the Father and the Spirit of uh, having fellowship. He left all of that to come into our world to take the low seat, to sit on the floor so that we would have the good seat. He's the one who said, I will pay for your sin so that you would be made right with me. And he did this because he is merciful and he offers this to us by faith in him. He doesn't say, write me a check. He doesn't say, who gives a hundred? Who gives a five hundred? Who gives a thousand? The, the highest bidder will be forgiven. He doesn't say that. He says, if you repent of your sin, whether it be partiality or primarily your sin of rebelling against God, because from that is where all of the other sins come from. But if you, re if you repent of living your life in uh, rejection of God, God promises to be merciful to you and not give you what you deserve. And he does this and he upholds his justice by, through his son Jesus Christ, who paid for your sins. And this is a free gift of God given to anyone who repents and believes in him. And so God's mercy then, as you meditate on this, as you grow in your understanding of this, it begins to warm your heart and move you towards being merciful towards others because you yourself have tasted the mercy of God. And another thing that we write that, that we find about favoritism in 
uh, countering it with mercy is that mercy is a blessing uh, because it casts out fear. That's what it means when James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, when you begin to see evidences of you being a merciful person, it shows that you have indeed been saved, that you have received the mercy of God because it has transformed how you live. And therefore, you can trust that on judgment day, your sins have been paid for. There is no, no pending judgment for you. You will be given mercy, not because you've been merciful, but because God is merciful through Christ. He has forgiven you. And evidence that you have been saved can be looked at on judgment day at those acts of mercy that you did as a lifestyle, not to earn salvation, but as evidence that you were saved. And so mercy is how we counter favoritism. The Lord calls us to reflect on His Word. And if we note or see any trace of favoritism, of discrimination, of partiality in our heart, I encourage you, don't just confess it lightly and say, Father, please forgive me because I've shown favoritism. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, you can do that. But if you want to have true heart change, bring the sin before God and say, Father, I've been a person who shows partiality. I treat people unfairly or unjustly, or I only reach out to a certain uh, group of people because I show partiality, I show favoritism, because I, and then you fill in the blank with, what the, what, what the Lord begins to convict you by. And it is in this way then that you begin to see the ugliness of sin and then you see the beauty of the mercy that God gives you in forgiving you. And so God calls us then to not be people who show favoritism but to be people who are merciful. And these are the three truths that James calls us to keep in mind uh, as we live as servants of Christ in this world. He calls us to remember that favoritism is incompatible with the Christian faith. Favoritism is sin, and uh, favoritism is countered with mercy. May the Lord make us a merciful people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because indeed you are merciful. Lord, if it weren't for this, none of us would be standing here. But praise be to you because you are merciful and you have sent your son, Jesus, into this world to seek and to save us. Lord, we do pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we have broken your law. We pray, we pray that you would please forgive us. Uh, maybe because we haven't done these things externally, but we have held these attitudes in our heart. Lord, we pray that you would transform us, that we would be merciful, that we would uh, draw near to others, and that we would treat them uh, with equity, that we would treat them uh, honorably, not because of their external um, uh, uh, clothing or because of what they possess, 
uh, but because they are image bearers whom you have died for. We pray that we would treat others with dignity, with respect, and that we would be striving to love them by primarily uh, sharing the gospel, but also by loving them according to their needs. We thank you, and we praise you that you have promised to do these things for your glory and our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.